Good evening, everybody. Is there much energy in the room? Ish. I'll give you an ish. I'm finishing our series on being fully alive this evening, which is really exciting. This has been a four-week series. The first part I did on Christmas Eve. Seemed a Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> New Year's Eve. Um, and I talked about goals to being fully alive. So often when we think, as Christians, we're like, goals, I'm not sure I want to do that. But I talked about how I thought goals are really important for us in our life. Then I looked at being emotionally mature. Uh, first week of January, Paul looked at being spiritually mature. And I want to finish this evening by talking about relational maturity. Now, I realise, even as I've given myself that topic it's a bit redonkulously big. And so, you know, it's like, hey, I'm going to cover everything that you want to know about relationships. I'm not. Uh, I'm going to have an angle on it this evening, but it's important stuff, getting our relationships right. And so excited to be talking about it this evening. I don't know whether any of you noticed that this week, Teresa, Teresa May, um, <laughs> she's kind of important, apparently. Uh, she's kind of a big deal. And anyway... She appointed a minister for loneliness. I don't know if any of you picked that up. But that's really sad, isn't it? That that's where we've reached the point that we've... On one hand, it's actually great because we're acknowledging that there's a massive problem. On the other hand, it's incredibly sad. And I was looking at some statistics about loneliness, but research by the British Red Cross and the Cooperative revealed that more than 9 million adults in the UK feel lonely. Nine million adults, that is a staggering number of people. Sometimes you, you think thousands, but even in your mind, just try to imagine nine million people. That many people are sitting there feeling lonely. We are living in the UK with an epidemic of loneliness. I think we can go that far. Community is breaking down. It's not, you know, I could do a whole sermon on the breakdown of community, but community is breaking down. And we don't know how to do relationships. We don't know how to prefer one another. And the Bible has incredible wisdom to bear on this subject of relationships and how to approach them. So we're going to be looking at Philippians 2 this evening. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. But I'm going to start by talking out of the message version, and then we're going to be looking at the NIV version. I'll be going through it in, in a different version. But the message is kind of like a, a modern-day translation of the Bible. But I think there's an emphasis and a tone in this passage that's incredibly helpful. And so I'm just going to read that. Hopefully, it'll come up on the screen behind me. But it says this. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ... If his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, he's really going after it, isn't he? <laughs> it's like, if you have a heart, this is a good rant. If you care, then do me a favour. Agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. I've read this passage many times, but it, there's sometimes a key piece of information 
that unlock something for you. The background to this passage is that two key people in the church in Philippi are arguing. They have fallen out. And Paul is exasperated. Can you, can you feel it? You can feel it in the message version, just this exasperation. It's like, look, you two, sort it out. You know, this is, he, it's almost like he's wanting to bang their heads together. And he's like, sort it out. If you have any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if any comfort from his love, he's laying it down. I don't know that you've ever experienced this. You're, you're watching people fighting or even you're watching yourself in the middle of an argument. That might even happen. Sometimes do you do that? You're in the middle of an argument, some of you might argue, and you kind of step out and you're like, how on earth did we get here? I've got no idea what we're even arguing about. <laughs> yeah, but you do that. You, you know, it's this kind of, it's changed. Somebody starts having a go at you about something and you completely change the field and you're like, yeah, but you do this. And you're like, ah, deflection, brilliant. Um, you're going to have a go at me? Well, I'm really going to have a go at you about anything that I can think of right now because you're really annoying me. But in chapter four of Philippians, we see who it is. I plead with you, Yodia. I can't say her name. It's not a common name today. And I plead with you, this one's much more simple, Syntyche, uh, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Do you know what? These two ladies are arguing. It's not a great thing to be known for in the Bible. But they're at loggerheads. There was a dispute and their disagreement appears to have infected the rest of the church. And you can see how that happens, can't you? That what happens is two people fall out and then camps develop. It's like, well, I love Syntyche. I can't even say her name, but um, do you see what I mean? And camps form around it, but people fall out. It happens in the church. Perish the thought, it could happen in our church. Sure, it would never, never happen. But we do, we fall out. We're sinful. We think that we're right. And suddenly we're in a disagreement and something's happened. So the passage that we're looking at today gives us some amazing tools to deal with relationships. This is the background and it's so helpful. You're like, oh, it's because of a falling out. Now, I wanted to start by saying, it's, in some senses, you could do a talk about relationships and it would be really easy to... Uh, there's lots of good relationships advice out there. You could read any good blog. But what is it that's different about spiritual wisdom? What is it that's different about the Bible? And I think that doing relationships well all starts with the Father's acceptance. And by that, I mean Father God's acceptance. We bring health to our relationships by first starting with our own individual connection with God. Many people try to have healthy relationships, but they themselves are completely distant from the Lord. And, and Paul is saying the key to having healthy relationships is rooted in our relationship with our Father God. I, I have this regularly, you know, I'm part of a church with multiple relationships going on all the time. You think of all the different interactions that happen within a church community. And sometimes I'm in an interaction whether they're at home, you know, in my marriage, in my family, in the church. And it's, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, isn't it? And go, oh, I don't know what to do in this situation. But how often do we step back in that moment, be like, Lord, what is it that you'd want to say into this situation? I think so often we're pursuing our own agenda. But what it's saying is, do you know what? We actually have to stand back 
in order to get the Lord's perspective on stuff. And what happens when you begin to do that, when you, you begin to say to the Lord, Lord, just show me your heart in this situation, is he does. And generally it's really painful because you realise you're not quite as blameless as you thought you were in the beginning. We have no hope of healing our relationships unless we presently have a relationship with God that's making a real difference. You see, we cannot give out of what we do not have. We are not the source of healthy, healthy relationships. He is. And it's difficult to give encouragement to someone else while we ourselves are discouraged. It's difficult to comfort somebody else in their pain while we ourselves are burned out and exhausted and irritated. So we can't give out of what we ourselves do not have. But often there's a great deal of unhealth in our relationships because we're trying to get from other people what only God can give. So what's happening often when we're going into relationships and we're going, it could be a friendship, it can be a romantic relationship, is that we're moving into this relationship, but we're looking to that person to give us the validation and love that only God can give us. And do you know what that means? It's really unfair. It's really unfair because that person can never win. That person is set up to fail. And it's only a matter of time before they're going to let us down because we're, we're putting on them something which actually the Lord's meant to provide. And this is why the acceptance of our Father, of our Heavenly Father, is so massively important. Let's look at some phrases in Philippians 2 verse 1. You know, there's kind of three little phrases that it talks about. It says there, this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. So let's just be honest from the beginning and say, all of us need encouragement. We are desperate to be encouraged. We need to be affirmed. We need to be approved of. All of us need to be applauded and cheered on in the jobs that we do, the efforts that we make, in the kind of people that we're becoming. We all need that kind of encouragement. There is a deep human need in all of us to be affirmed and to be approved of. But who is ultimately going to meet that need for me? That, that need for affirmation and approval. Should... Should I be upset with you because you didn't come along and pat me on the back and back enough and say, oh, do you know what, James, you're amazing. You're doing great. Do you know, you're just so wonderful. Should you be upset with me or someone else because we, we didn't notice your effort? Because we don't cheer you on enough? The truth is, there is no applause, not from your parents, not the well done that you've always been seeking from your mother or father, brother or sister, spouse or boss, your friends, your pastor, there is no applause that will ever meet your deepest need for encouragement and affirmation other than hearing the applause from Jesus. It is a hole. There is a massive void that if we're not careful, we are looking to every single relationship that we move into to fill. Every friendship, every romantic relationship, we're like, help me, rescue me, fill this need, fill this void in me. And do you know what? It's only the Lord who's meant to do that. It's him and him alone who can fill that need. We are created for relationship with our Father and he's the one that fills it. This deep encouragement from the Lord. Can you see how different it is when we're full of approval of the Lord, when he's filled us, when our roots are secure, when we know our identity and then we step into relationship? Can you see how different that is? Because we're coming from a place of health rather than a place of deficit. Otherwise, we're coming saying, help me meet my needs. The difference is when we're full of the Lord, then we're moving into a relationship in a healthy way going, what is this going to hold? I'm not looking for you to affirm me. I don't need everything from you. 
We read the second phrase in verse one. So therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, do you know what? I need comfort and you need comfort. There are places in our lives that need to be healed and fixed. The broken areas of us. Hurts that we've been dragging from childhood into adulthood. We all have them. We all have our scars. We all have the wounds. We all have the unkind words that have been said, that we've remembered, that have gone in deeply into our mind, that have embedded themselves. Some of you have incredible memories and you can remember every hurt, not every, but most hurtful things that have been said to you and they've just, they've just sunk in deeply. Places where we've been rejected, pain, sometimes unspeakable pain that we've suffered And there's many places where we ourselves have suffered self-inflicted wounds. So it's not even that it's always somebody else. Sometimes we've just done stupid things. And hindsight's a wonderful thing. We look back and we're like, why on earth did I do that? But sometimes these things are self-inflicted that we have caused them ourselves. We will never receive the depth of comfort to fix and heal us from other people. I cannot come to you and you cannot come to me and we can't come to each other and say, here is the bill for my life. These are all the things that have happened in my life that hurt. Here's the bill. And because of what my dad did to me, because of what my mother or my ex or the girls in secondary school did to me and fixed me. Only God the Father can give us what we need in terms of healing and consolation and comfort. Only he can fix those deep wounds. Now, community can be incredibly encouraging and incredibly kind of healing. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that that cannot fix the deep wounds. It's our father that will do that. It's his affirmation. It's his approval and it's his comfort. And then we, go, we keep going on. And then it, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship in the spirit, again, we turn to one another and say, do you know what? I'm lonely. You must relate to me. It's your job to relieve me of these intense feelings of loneliness. I sometimes hear complaints from individuals who have gone to our small groups and they've said, you know, I, I go to the group, but I still don't have the depth of relationship that I need. It's all very nice and, you know, the group seemed kind, but I need more and I'm still lonely. No amount of human relationship can ever touch that deep inner place of loneliness in us that's designed for fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Only God himself can fill the hole in your heart that is designed for him. And if we're always going into these situations looking for that, then we are going to be deeply, deeply let down. Our ability to have healthy relationships comes out of our understanding of the Father's acceptance. That he calls me by name. That he knows every hair on my head that he knows everything about me, that he's seen everything that has ever happened to me, that he is completely loving and faithful and that he'll walk through me, through through every situation in my life, that he's never going to leave me, he's never going to let me down. That's our father. Do Do we know that? Because if we know that, it changes everything. It changes how we do relationships. The passage then moves on. So that's kind of a starter for 10. It's pretty brutal. Um, It's big stuff though, isn't it? 
Paul's saying, do you understand? This is your God. And this is what he wants to, this is what a relationship with him looks like. And then he, so the passage moves on and then it talks about two elements that destroy relationships. Two relationship destroyers. And they'll almost always be present when you have a bad relationship. Moving through on to, into verse three, it says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. The first relationship destroyer is selfish ambition. The second is vain conceit, which literally, a better translation of this word vain conceit, because you're like, well, what does that even mean? I think a better way of translating it would be empty opinion. So the... Paul is really talking about the me first attitude. In almost every broken relationship, you're going to have at least one of the parties, if not both, adopting a me first self-centered attitude. So Eugene Peterson, who's one of the great spiritual writers of our day, wrote in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He writes this, our culture encourages and rewards selfish ambition without qualification. We are surrounded by a way of life in which betterment is understood as expansion, as acquisition, as fame. Everyone wants to get more for themselves, to be on top, no matter what it is the top of is admired. There is nothing recent about this temptation. It is the oldest sin in the book, the one that got Adam thrown out of, of the garden and Lucifer thrown out of heaven. The oldest sin in the book. What is fairly new about it, though, is the general admiration and approval that it receives. So, it's this culturally approved viewpoint that we always must end up on the top, that we've always got to win, that we've always got to expand. And the opposite of a me first attitude is you first. I will defer to you. It's the attitude of the Old Testament patriarch Abraham. And we see it so beautifully because sometimes we're like, well, what does this actually look like? You're saying, don't be this. But what does kind of a deferring attitude or a, a you first attitude actually look like? And we see it in Genesis 13, um, verses eight and nine. It says this. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So rather than me first, Abraham said, you first, I will defer to you. You choose. You decide. It's almost impossible to be in a bad relationship with people who defer to you and are willing to let you go first. It's really hard. It's hard to keep fighting with someone who says, I will get out of the way and let you choose. Like, ah, okay. Isn't that frustrating when somebody does that? So the first re relational destroyer is selfishness, me first. And then Paul goes on and says that relationships are destroyed by empty opinion, vain conceit. Have you ever argued with someone and you've just kept the argument going even though you've got no basis for your opinion? You're like, I am so enjoying winding you up. I'm just going to keep arguing to annoy you. In fact, I have no idea what we're even talking about, but I'm going to take the other side. And sometimes, you know, the more you talk, the less you're making sense. You've just adopted a certain position without any thought, without any real research. It's empty opinion. I'm just going to tell you what I think. Here it is. 
haven't really thought about it. Is it not pride that drives so much empty opinion? We just don't want to admit that we don't know what we're talking about. We're making things up as we go. We've never really thought about it, read about it, but we're stubbornly dug in. How many arguments would be ended with a simple acknowledgement, well, I don't know very much about this. I don't really remember. You may be right. If you were to combine selfish ambition and vain conceit, you'd end up with human pride. I think that would be kind of a good summary of those both. Now, this um, quote that I'm about to say by C.S. Lewis has ruined me. (laughs) It's one of those quotes that you're like, oh, it's so profound. It's from mere Christianity, and it's just talking about what human pride looks like. It says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everybody else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Wow. That's enough to chew on, isn't it? What does that say about my heart? So... So what would we look like if we were healthy? (laughs) What would health look like if we didn't have this? And the answer's intriguing because it's all summed up in the word humility. Humility is a really interesting concept because it's one of those kind of ethereal things that it's really difficult to define. It's really difficult to grab hold of what it actually is. It's actually easier to define it by what it's not. So it's actually easier to say, well, pride is this, The opposite of pride is humility. Um, But coming back to the passage, it says, rather, and when it's saying this word, rather than selfish ambition and vain conceit, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Do you know what? That's pretty countercultural. Everything in society would tell you, look after you. You're amazing. You're number one. Don't worry about them. Do you know what? This is absolutely at odds with everything that the world would say. Look to other people's interests above yourselves. Paul is saying, if you want to have healthy relationships, I want you to have humility. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the key verse to building strong and lasting communities. Think about others. I said this this morning kind of as a throwaway point but I really believe it we talk in this church a lot about small groups and we talk about the importance of community and sometimes we're like hey you just need to sign up to a small group do you know what I think that's true but I think that's the first step I think there are two more steps that are massively important the second one is this commit to it do you know what? it's one thing to sign up it's another to go to actually commit to a group of people to walk through life with them So the second thing is to commit. The third thing is to go, but not to consume, to go to give. That you go to that community, not sitting there going, what group am I going to go that I'm going to consume from? But what group am I going to go to that I am going to give to? When we turn relationships on their heads and we start saying, what is it that I can give? Generally, the people that start asking that question are in healthy relationships. Whereas if we are going to something to consume something, then generally we're in trouble from the beginning. 
Sometimes that we need healing, sometimes we need patching up, that, that's fine. But it's this, it's this shift. We go to give, not go to consume. Humility is what we're looking at. True humility is not thinking less of yourself or thinking more of yourself, because you can think it's one of those two things. It's thinking of yourself less. True humility is not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not noticing yourself because you're not self-consumed. It's not always being worried about how you're looking. It's not being down on yourself. It's not being up on yourself. It's just not talking and thinking about yourself so much. Real humility is self-forgetfulness. There's an amazing little booklet, which is about 80 pages, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's kind of a catchy title because you have to think about what it means. Like, the freedom of self, what does that actually mean? But at the heart of it, it's talking about thinking about yourself less. And Keller says, the best way I can illustrate this to you, this concept, is with body parts. If you go to work tomorrow and somebody comes in saying, my elbow feels great, you're going to say, that's weird. The only reason anybody would ever say that is if yesterday their elbows didn't feel great. Because ordinarily, if your elbows are working fine, they don't draw attention to themselves. How often do you think about your elbow? Rarely. If somebody's saying, wow, my knees are bending so well today. When I sit down, they just bend. <laughs> when I stand up, they unbend. Isn't this amazing? It's just incredible. You would never even think about it unless there's something wrong with them. You don't think about it. Now, let's look at your ego, your sense of self, what you think about yourself. If you were healthy, you wouldn't even think about how you're doing, how you're looking or what people are saying about you. You wouldn't even think about it. You wouldn't be looking at yourself or your own or, or your own interests. You'd be looking at other things. You'd be looking at God. You'd be looking at your neighbour. You'd be looking at everybody else. Do you see? If you're always thinking about yourself, why is that? It's because there's something wrong with your ego. Just like if you're thinking about your elbow, there's been something wrong with your elbow. We're not healthy, if that's the case. We're vain. Every road leads back to me. We're lacking in glory, and as a result, we're not humble. We're filled with pride. Don't, don't hear me wrongly. There is a time and a place to think about ourselves, to work out process stuff, to work out what's going on. The problem is that our culture has made us become self-focused. And therefore, what that means is every interaction I'm looking at for how does that affect me? It's all about me. Oh, you've hurt me. You've hurt my, you've hurt my feelings. You've hurt my ego. You've made it about you. So much of the time, it's just all become about me. This self-focusedness, I'm not even sure that's a word, breaks our ability to have good relationships. It gets in the way. So what does actually, what would a humble, a truly humble person actually look like? If you were to meet them, this kind of thing that I'm talking about, what would that person look like? And C.S. Lewis says this, you would never come away from meeting them thinking that they were humble. He says this, they would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would re remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person 
is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Isn't that fascinating? That when you meet true humility, what it looks like is somebody that's deeply, deeply interested in other people. They're not self-focused. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to the thoughts such as this. I'm in this room with these people. Does this make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Paul is saying the way that we're going to fix what is most wrong with us in our centre is to see Jesus. As we concentrate on him, as we fix our, our eyes on him, what happens is we start to think about ourselves less because we're focused on him. And this passage, just final thought, this passage is amazing because it starts with this idea where Paul's saying, stop fighting if you have any encouragement with one another. You know, if any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then do this. He then moves, because the context is that people have been arguing, that there have been disagreements going on. But then the, the passage keeps going and it says, don't use these relationship breakers of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Don't do that. That's going to ruin relationships. And it moves into, this is what it looks like. It is humility. It's humility. It's not pride. It's humility. And then in verse 5, it says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Or in another translation, it says your relationships, because it's been talking about relationships, should be done in the same way that Christ Jesus does them. And then it goes into this amazing verses 6 to 11, which you might well know. Uh, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness. And really what it's talking about is this pivotal moment where it says, if you want to know what humility looks like, look at Christ. Look at Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like. This, and this passage, it says, Jesus emptied himself. This is, he was in heaven and he came to earth as a baby and, it, and he emptied himself of his glory. He gave up his divinity. In that moment, he emptied himself. And he came to earth and he died on a cross for every single one of us. It's the ultimate act of humility. And so this passage is saying, look at Jesus. He is your model. This is what, if you want to do relationships well, Jesus shows you it is through humility. It is through thinking about yourself less that you will start doing and having amazing relationships and it comes out of an acceptance of knowing who your father is. Acceptance of the father. That deep knowledge that inside I am completely and truly and wonderfully loved by the creator of heaven. Out of that I will move into every relationship. And I am not looking to get, I am looking to give. Why don't we stand? <laughs>